0: Hi, this is Ben Lola. Back to the Bible Canada. On this program of our current series, Journey to the Cross, we'll take a closer look at what Jesus did when He cleansed the temple. So let's join Dr. Neufeld in the Gospel on today's message entitled, Monday, The Journey Demands a New Heart. In ancient Israel, Passover was
1: part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When God granted Israel deliverance from Egyptian slavery, the deliverance of God came suddenly. After the angel of death had killed all the firstborn of Egypt, out of fear, the Egyptians urged Israel to leave as quickly as they could. Get out, they said, lest all of us die. According to the command of God, all the Israelites then asked the Egyptians for gold, silver, jewelry, and clothing, which the Egyptians, being terrified, gave them everything they asked for. The Bible says Israel literally plundered the Egyptians. Israel then left so quickly with such haste, they didn't even have enough time to properly prepare for their food, so they took dough that had not yet been leavened. And the wonderful truth is this. When God rescues his people, he does so suddenly, abruptly, they're set free. From this developed a tradition, a tradition that came as a result of the command of God. When Israel would celebrate the Passover, they did so with unleavened bread. They would, in preparation for Passover, go through their homes in clothing, making sure there was not one piece of yeast in their homes. This preparation for Passover was infused with an additional meaning. The prophet Hosea would speak about idolatry as leaven, an evil, pervasive influence in Israelite culture that worked its way through everything. Amos the prophet speaks in a very similar way. He recounts Israel's sin, and then after sinning, he says, Israel would simply go through the ritual of their offerings, but, says Amos, this is as if they had offered to the Lord leavened bread, that is, unacceptable offerings. And so the idea of leaven and Passover bread became a symbol for evil. So, preparing for Passover by removing leaven from your house was symbolic of preparing for Passover by removing all that was impure or unholy or displeasing to God on the Passover. On the day after Palm Sunday, Jesus was about to show Israel and the temple as a whole that they had not really done this for a long time. They were desecrating the Passover by their moral yeast. And so Monday marks the day in which Christ, journeyed to the cross, shows us that his journey demands a new heart. Jesus has spent the night after Palm Sunday back in Bethany. It's now Monday, and he walks the three kilometers back to Jerusalem, but this time there are no crowds lining the way. Mark tells us that he was hungry. Now, had he not eaten? Well, we don't know, because we weren't there, and Mark doesn't tell us, so we don't know. But we know that he sees a fig tree and leaf from a distance. And we know he walked up to the tree looking for figs. And finding none, he curses the tree. Mark adds a curious phrase. He says, it was not the season for figs. Well, if it isn't fig season, why is Jesus looking for figs? And why does he curse the poor fig tree when he doesn't find what wouldn't be on the tree anyway? Matthew indicates the tree withered at once, and Mark makes it sound like it only withered the next day. That's on Tuesday. But the two accounts are easily harmonized. It must have been clear from the very moment Jesus cursed the tree that it died instantly. The disciples can visibly see a miracle. But the next day, the effects of a dead tree were completely apparent. The tree had altogether dried up. At any rate, why does he curse the poor tree? Critics of Christ claim that he had a bad temper. I know, how do we understand him both cursing a tree for not having what it could not have and cursing it at all? We know that it's March or April, and it is true that figs would not begin for another six weeks. But, and I need to say here, I know nothing about fig trees, but I am told that a fig tree first leafs out, and when it does, there's a kind of a bud called in Hebrew, a pagim, also called the early figs, as opposed to the late figs. These pagim, or early figs, are a bland tasting fruit that people sometimes ate, Technically, they're not figs at all, but they were called figs or were called early figs. Now, on any fig tree, if only leaves appeared without the pugim, then that tree would not have figs at all that year. That's probably an explanation of what we see here. That being said, yet why does Jesus curse the poor fig tree? I want to take you back to an earlier time in Jesus' ministry, a time when he was telling a parable which his disciples would probably have remembered. I'm reading from Luke chapter 13, where he says, "'A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, "'Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground?' And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure, and if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. According to John, this is now Jesus' third Passover in his ministry. The three years have passed and still no fruit. And if I have put this together correctly, Jesus sees this fig tree, which will bear no fruit this year, as a living parable worked out in front of his disciples. But, and this is the key question, what does the fig tree represent? See, some Bible teachers say it represents Israel, who have been disobedient and who are about to reject their Messiah. Now, that's a plausible explanation, but I disagree. Look at the context. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and after he did that, he went into the temple, and then he went back to Bethany. The next day, Monday, according to Mark, he goes back into the temple, and as we will see, he creates sheer pandemonium in the temple. The next day, on Tuesday, he goes into the temple again, and on this day, the entire day is filled with incredible controversy between him and the Jewish religious leaders who minister, yes, in the temple. And as we will see tomorrow, his final words around the fig tree have everything to do with the future of the temple. So from my vantage point, what Jesus is doing is cursing the temple itself. He is saying to the entire corrupt system of what the temple had become, may no one eat fruit from you again. Here you are making sure there is no leaven in your temple when the leaven of unrighteousness so pervades this house that I now curse it. Now, if I understand that correctly, this itself is a staggering statement, an astonishing living parable. But as of today, on Monday, Jesus' disciples don't understand, but they will. Then leaving the fig tree that he has killed with a word, he walks from the Mount of Olives and heads straight to the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was a massive complex, as we saw yesterday, and at the heart of the temple, at its very center, was the Holy of Holies, where, as we know, the high priest was allowed to enter but only once a year, and on that occasion, it was called the Day of Atonement. The Holy of Holies symbolized the very dwelling place of God. Now, outside of the Holy of Holies was the place of sacrifice, and then in a place where all sacrifices could be observed was what was called the Court of Israel, in which only Jewish men could participate. And outside of that was the Court of Women, and all of this was enclosed behind a wall. Now, what I have described are the temple buildings, or what is called the temple complex. Surrounding this was a large open area, kind of like a large stone outdoor courtyard, Then surrounding this courtyard was a railing with a screen. Outside of the screen were a series of signs indicating that any Gentile who goes through the screen doors to approach the temple will be immediately killed, and I'm assuming that this will happen by the hands of the temple police. Now, Outside of that screen was the court of Gentiles, and so you can get the picture. No Gentile would be able to even get close to the temple complex. They could see it through the screen from a distance. That place outside the screen was called, yes, the Court of the Gentiles. During Passover, sheep would have been sacrificed. The Jewish historian Josephus estimated that some 250,000 sheep were sacrificed. But since no sheep may have a blemish, which includes any broken bone, no hint of disease at any time, no small or large defect, all these thousands of sheep would have been inspected by the priests. The rumor was around that the priests were sometimes crooked and in league with the money changers, and they might reject anyone's private offering or sacrifice. And so because you didn't want to drag your own animals all the way to Jerusalem only to be rejected by the crooked priests, so you went to the temple to buy already approved animals. And even though that was convenient, it was pricey. First, you had to convert your money into temple money. That's what the money changers were for. And after all, you couldn't use filthy worldly money in the temple. And you'd get ripped off doing it. It was at an incredibly poor rate of exchange. Then you could go to the next station and buy the temple animals, which were sold at greatly inflated prices. After all, the priests needed to inspect them. And so you were cheated not once, but twice. I mean, imagine the poor trying to get in on this. And Mark mentions doves on sale there. Doves were required for the purification of women and the cleansing of those who had skin diseases and were also used by the poor who could not afford more expensive sacrifices. But that would mean that the entire court of the Gentiles would be overrun with merchants during Passover. It became a virtual stockyard attached to a grand banking scheme so it's the problem. Well, when we come back, we're going to see that what Jesus did on Palm Sunday and what he did that day in the temple sealed his fate. It would mean that he would die at Passover. But as we have already seen, he planned that all along. When we come back, we'll see the drama of what has been called the cleansing of the temple.
0: There's already so much we've looked at today. For example, the meaning of the cursed fig tree representing the defiled temple sheds a lot of insight into what Jesus did when he returned to the temple after his triumphant entry on Palm Sunday. As we will see after returning from the break, Jesus did not come to cleanse the temple, as is often taught, but rather to speak a prophetic word against it. Did you know recently our young adult ministry called In Doubt has launched its second generation of resources, which means that In Doubt will now feature a weekly podcast addressing critical life issues and questions that demand the attention of young people. This and all of In Doubt's new resources, articles, interviews, testimonies, videos are all supported by a brand new mobile-optimized website at indoubt.ca. So if you're a young adult or no one that is eagerly seeking to know God in their lives, this is an incredible Bible engagement tool for you. You can check it all out at indoubt.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. When
1: Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple on that Monday, he roared, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus was in fact quoting from Isaiah 56, 3-7. Let me read it to you. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am only a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbaths and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here we get a sense of what the temple was intended for. It was intended for those who would be faithful, Jews and Gentiles, from all the nations of the earth. They would come to Jerusalem, the place of worship, and there they would pray and seek God's face and find out that the God of Israel could be their God as well. And that, by the way, was the purpose of the temple. You remember when the f- temple was first built by Solomon, he had prayed, and I'm reading from 2 Chronicles 6. He would say, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house here from heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that the house I have built is called by your name. See, that was the purpose of the temple. It was also an evangelistic call to nations. Instead, the nations were being driven from the temple by cattle and by greed. And Jesus, seeing this, walks into the courts of the temple and shouts with the words of Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's kicking over chairs and birds are flying everywhere and coins are rolling down the floor. You could only imagine the pandemonium. A great many Bible teachers have called this event the cleansing of the temple. See, they assume that Jesus is entering the temple as a reformer. But by now, we should all see that he's doing nothing of the sort. If he was trying to cleanse the temple, well, frankly, he failed for within several hours, all the tables would have been set up again, and business would have gone on as usual. And what's more, if you read John's gospel, he tells us of something extremely similar that Jesus said and did two years earlier. So this is not the first time he did this, and it never ended the temple trade then, and it wouldn't end it now. It was only an interruption for one day. Jesus didn't go into the temple as a reformer at all. He entered as a prophet. He was announcing that God was condemning the temple. He was saying, just like he said to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He was announcing the reason for God's curse on this house, for this house was to be a house for all nations, and so as God has patiently dug round that tree many times, and it still bore no fruit, now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. I need to stop here for a moment and apply this to our lives today. I hope you can all see the point of applications for Christians. If our church life is only for us, if we are happy with our present size and no longer care about the lost, for those who have no room to bind themselves to the Lord, if we find ourselves inconvenienced by reaching out to those most unlike ourselves and only think about what we want and whether we insiders are happy, then hear me, this is the exact attitude that Jesus condemns on that day. My house is a house of prayer for all nations. May we always pray, O Lord, keep me from the attitude of excluding those who have not yet found a place before your courts. There's one more thing that happened on Monday. Bible teachers are in some disagreement as to when this happened, but I think Monday is the most natural place for a series of events that only John mentions in his gospel. I'm reading from John twelve twenty to 23 where he says, uh, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's, it's worthy to notice that these Greeks were in Jerusalem for the Passover. We're not told if they were merely curious or whether they were converts to Judaism. If they were converts, they would have been circumcised and committed themselves to the law and then cut themselves off from their Gentile kin. Then they would have been allowed into the temple. Very few Gentiles were willing to go that far in that day. We do know that there was a technical designation given to some Gentiles who were not converts, but who loved the God of Israel. They were called God-fearers. They would not cut themselves off from family, but they loved the God of Israel. That's probably who these Greeks were. So let's understand these Greeks. They're despised among the Jews, and still they come. They hear of the triumphant ride on Palm Sunday and would have heard people expecting Jesus to crush the Gentile nations. There's no place for them in the temple, but Jesus had by then most likely driven the money changers out of the temple, and that might have intrigued these Greeks. Would Jesus allow them to see him? And they find Philip probably because the name Philip is a Greek name, even though Philip is a Jew. In spite of how they are rejected, they love the God of Israel, and hearing of Jesus cleansing the temple, wonder, is it possible to see him? In other words, they will risk one more rejection in the hope there might yet be a place for them at God's table. And the minute Jesus hears this, he says, now the hour has come. Now the Son of Man will be glorified. He means the hour has come for his splendor, his majesty, his greatness to be demonstrated. Right now, with the coming of these Greeks, this will be accomplished. And Jesus knew that many of the people who cheered him on in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem really had a vision that was much too small. They had envisioned a Messiah reigning over the Jews, bringing blessing to Jews, and Jesus envisioned himself reigning in blessing to countless Gentiles as well. And then Jesus says one more thing, and I'm reading from John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. I know this is a meaningful image to all my hearers who are grain farmers on the prairies. Spring is now at hand, and I know the foolishness you're about to embark in. You know, for the rest of the country that doesn't know what these people in the prairies are doing, they will take their finest grain, which they could use to make bread or other products or sell on the open market. Instead of making money on it, immediately they will put their grain into a cedar, and they're going to bury it in the ground over a large tract of land. And if you didn't know the outcome, you'd say, what a horrible waste. Because once it's buried in the field, you'll never find it again. It's always gone. The seed is lost. It's been destroyed. And Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Unless I am nailed to the cross, a great harvest of Jews and of Greeks will never happen. But if I die, I will gain a hundredfold return. That's what Jesus knew. He was condemning the temple, but the leaders of the temple in anger were going to condemn him. But that's what he had planned on. And if they did condemn him, he would bear much fruit. And so as evening came, Jesus walked three kilometers back to Bethany, and Jerusalem was troubled. What was he up to? Why such a grand entrance on Sunday? And why such a troubling day on Monday? But Jesus was journeying to the cross. His face was set. Stay with me as tomorrow we will see Jesus on Tuesday, surrounded by controversy that will set all of Jerusalem aflame. Well, let's end today by just offering a brief prayer to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deeds of Jesus. We thank you for the lesson that he gave as he cleansed the temple, because he would be a savior not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Thank you, O Lord God, because most of us listening are Gentiles. And we have seen the mercy of Christ, and he has become our king as well. We give you praise in his name. Amen.
0: thanks again, John, for your message today. You've painted for us just a a wonderful picture of uh, what's happening here in the temple and what Jesus is about doing. And I know you've described it very well already, but I think it's worth describing again. How should we as people today, as God's followers today, as followers of Jesus, live out what Jesus is doing in the temple?
1: Some Bible teachers have said that the cursing of the fig tree also has another analogy based to the Levitical law, which said that trees at the edge of a field were to be left for the poor and for the alien, for the sojourner, for the foreigner who is traveling through. In other words, the blessing that God had given to Israel was to fall on the Gentiles as well. So every time we look at that fig tree, it keeps saying the same thing, and we ought to hear that. I think one of the great tragedies that can happen to any Christian movement in any country, including ours, is that we stop praying for and pleading for God for those who have not yet heard and those who are not a part of us. I think that we ought to make our worship such that we are always faithfully declaring the word, but making it appeal to those who are not yet a part of the gospel. And we ought to open our doors and our homes and our churches to make the gospel more easily accessible to everyone that can come. So I think that's the lesson to be learned. Let's never forget to reach out.
0: Thanks, John. And we look forward to tomorrow as we continue to journey to the cross with Back to the Bible Canada. This teaching has given us a vivid picture of why Jesus condemned the temple, declaring that it had become defiled, fruitless, a symbol of empty religion. I pray that we may see the application of what Jesus did as a reminder and perhaps even a warning to ensure our faith is genuine and that we bear true fruit for the kingdom of God and for His glory. I hope you join us tomorrow as we continue looking at Christ's journey to the cross on Tuesday of the Passion Week with Dr. John Newfeld. The Bible contains many passages about the topic of wisdom. Here are a few examples. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Or how about Ecclesiastes 7.12? For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom is a critically important issue for all believers to understand and apply. Hopefully, you had a chance to listen to Dr. Neufeld's recent series on the subject called Skillful Living. Focusing on Proverbs, known as the Book of Wisdom, we learn all about what it means to live a wise and godly life. This great one-week series is yours on CD today for free. So call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or email us at info at backtothebible.ca.